Hello everybody, I hope you are having a good day. For those who don't know me yet, my name is Ludwig Benecke. I am from Germany. I'm 33 years old and married to Cecily. And together with her, I have three children, three sons, age six, four and two years old. And for October, we are expecting another ch child. We live in Northern Bavaria in a small village called Trief. Uh, in a building that once belonged to a Catholic monastery. I work as a lawyer together with my father. We have a law office close to where we live. And yeah, I am part of the Angel Network since 2017. We got introduced to the Angel Network through the Wittenberg Initiative and since 2017 uh, we are part of the council. And last year we co-founded the Ministry of Quellen, which came out of the Eiffel Fellowship, the ministry that George and Hannah Miley founded several years ago, and together with my parents, with the Miley's, and with Ryan and Lee Thurman, Cecily and I are part of this ministry now, which is also a part of the Antioch Network. Now my talk today will be about the Kingdom of God and the Kingdom of Mammon, and especially the huge contradiction that is in between both of these kingdoms. Uh, before I start, I want to have a short prayer. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your presence. Although we cannot be together physically, you unite us spiritually, Lord. I thank you for this. And I ask you to bless this time to open our hearts and our ears to what you are saying, so that we can listen. Help us in our current state, Lord. Bless this time. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, again, the topic of my talk today is the Kingdom of God and the Kingdom of Mammon. And this theme came up during our discussions in the teaching team uh, in preparation of the gathering and about how the prophetic witness could look like today. And in times when our materialistic driven Western world is shattered by a severe crisis through the pandemic, it felt very relevant to us and to me to look at a very well-known motivation that is the origin of so much pain and suffering. Maybe this talk can be seen as a short summary of what we can learn from God about greed, avarice, and other covetous behaviors. So the way I will address this topic is by first trying to give a general overview about greed and materialism, especially from the Bible's point of view, and then adapt them to our current day situation in the Western church and Western society. And in between, I will try to illustrate the severe damage that greed has on our lives and souls. To start the topic, I want to tell you a Jewish anecdote I read recently on, recently on greed that fits very well to what I want to talk about today. Uh, I read it in German and translated it. I hope it's understandable. A Jew once asked his rabbi, I don't understand why poor people always are kind and helpful while rich people don't even look at you. What is it all about with money? The rabbi answered, go to the window and look, what do you see? The Jew answered, 
I see children playing on the street and women chatting on the town square. The rabbi said, Now come here and stand before the mirror. What do you see now? The Jew answered, Me, of course. The rabbi said, You see, the window is made of glass, but if you put only a little bit of silver behind it, all you see is only yourself. It is the same with money. Now, greed is a well-known sin, and we can find many stories in all kinds of different cultures, as well as in the Bible. For example, in Greek mythology, you have the famous myth of King Midas, whose lust for gold almost cost his life, as he could not find anything to eat, since all he touched turned into gold. But, of course, greed is not only about money or gold. Icarus longed to fly as close to the sun as possible, which led to the wax in his wing melting, so he fell down on earth and died. And although these are just myths, I really like these stories, as they illustrate the power of greed and its dangers very graphically and drastically. But of course, the Bible has a lot to say about greed as well, and I want to focus on some major passages, both in the Old and New Testament. So in the Old Testament, we can see greed as a trait in Adam and Eve right at the beginning. Not maybe in the material sense as in the story of King Midas, but more like in the story of Icarus. You read about Adam, Adam, Adam and Eve motives when they eat the forbidden fruit as the serpent promises them godlike powers. What they covet is power and self-determination. But what they receive is a void in them that comes from their sudden separation from God. They lose their intimate connection to the Lord because of their desire for what they should not desire. God-like power and influence. Now they have to deal with this void that sin left inside. And this, in a nutshell, is what humanity struggles with since the very beginning. How can I fill this void in me, this lack of love, acceptance, security and stability? Surely Adam and Eve have not found it in the material world they were exposed to after they left the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. Yet so many people still are looking in our worldly sphere to find all these essential gifts, love, acceptance, security. And in this search, we find a vast potential for even more sin to, that is stacking up until it crumbles, like the Tower of Babel, which kind of closes this story of Adam and Eve and the first humans. Let's go back to Genesis, because already the next chapters after the story of Adam and Eve show how Cain covets the blessing and love that he saw Abel receive. And this ends in murder and violence, a connection we will address more thoroughly later on. There are plenty more examples only in the book of Genesis, just such as Jacob and Esau, who dispute led to the division of the family of Abraham and Isaac, and eventually led to war between Israel and Edom, the peoples who are the descendants of both Jacob and Esau. Then we have Solomon in his age, whose wealth and sexual lust blurred his wisdom so that already in the next generation the people of Israel split in two kingdoms who fought each other several times for several centuries. And then there we have the story of Ahab, and this is very interesting to me, as there are all kinds of evil that Ahab committed during his reign, which you can read in the Bible by idolatry and other things, really bad things. 
And however, however, the one thing that eventually led to his demise is that he and his wife ordered the assassination of Naboth so they could take his acres. God then orders Elijah to tell Ahab, Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? This is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood, yes, yours. Again, there seems to be a connection between greed and violence. Uh, finally, before we look at Jesus' teachings, I just want to point out that in the Ten Commandments, the sin of greed and all its variations is addressed like twice and with plenty of more laws that address greedy behavior in the Old Testament. Obviously, we know the Ten Commandments. You shall not steal. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Why do you say all of this? We probably all know these stories and facts, and no one likes to be greedy. It is probably one of the most common understanding in all kind of cultures, not only the Judeo-Christian culture. So why even talk about it? For now, let us look at the New Testament and Jesus' teaching. First, we have to understand the purpose of Jesus' teachings, especially his purpose with the Sermon on the Mount, arguably his most influential teaching. He did not want to extend or replace the law of Moses with his own modified laws and create a new unattainable standard of holiness for his disciples. He wanted to illustrate to the people what the kingdom of God looks like and how people act who seek God in everything and therefore live in that kingdom. They don't steal. They don't strive for power, money, sexual lust and other things. They are a new creation with a new lifestyle the lifestyle of Jesus and of the kingdom of God. So this understanding is crucial to correctly understand all the parables that Jesus used later in the gospel. These parables again show us what the kingdom of God should look like and looks like. For example, in Matthew 18, we learn that the kingdom of God, that in the kingdom of God, justice and fairness looks very different to our current understanding of these principles. In the parable of the unmerciful servant, God shows that the right and just thing to do is not to insist on your rights, even if they are lawful. The just thing, the justice of the kingdom of God, is to be merciful and forgive your debtor 77 times. Now trust me, I am a lawyer, and if I would start to tell my clients they should stop pursuing their claims, I would lose my job immediately. This is understandable since often the clients have a right and lawful claim and just want everything to be orderly and legitimate. Like the merciless servant in the parable does, probably. Anyways, did God not establish all these laws about covering someone else's property? It is only just to insist on your right. Well, this is what our Western culture of postmodern society looks like. And we are proud of our systems since most of them are highly efficient and based on Christian values, at least superficially. To be clear, I, I don't deny that our societies in many ways are based on Christian values, and I also can see that God bless our Western cultures in many ways, financial and polit political stability, constitutionality, and personal freedom, that these are all achievements which origins can, can be found in the Bible. 
But still, reading all these passages, we have to acknowledge that there seems to be more than hits the eye when you look at our understanding of materialism and other things. Eventually, it is not the rule of law, but the rule of mercy that Jesus is really talking about. Now, Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, verse 24, mentioned the God of this world, this current world, the mammon and that we cannot serve him and God at the same time. He says, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. It is either or, nothing in between. This sounds very drastical and therefore, again, somewhat unattainable. We are part of this fallen world. We must somehow make friends with with money and that's what Jesus mentions later in, in Luke chapter 16 it's the second time he mentions the word mammon and that we are to make friends with the mammon of unrighteousness and yeah this is right again Jesus simply clarifies what the kingdom of God looks like rule of God no rule of mammon obviously in our current state we have to deal with mammon and its influence even not to make friends with him, but only for the purposes of the one true kingdom, the kingdom that will last. And therefore, Jesus gives us this drastic claim that we generally cannot serve both God and the mammon. So we can already in internalize this truth about God and his kingdom, and that our hearts and minds become shaped by it. In the same way, we can understand the words of Jesus when he spoke to the rich man who wanted to know what is lacking him to get eternal life. It's not that he is wealthy, that is the reason that he cannot enter the kingdom. It is that he cannot accept that in the kingdom of God, all his wealth and reputation is worth nothing. That is why he leaves Jesus disappointed. This is, why, uh, this is also why Paul writes in his first letter to Timothy, chapter 6, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. He mentions the love of money, not money itself. Now that we have gone through some passages in the Bible, I want to look for the essence of what is said about these two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of mammon. I want to focus especially on the kingdom of mammon as its the kingdom of our current world. So what is this kingdom of mammon? Obviously, it is not a physical kingdom. Like the kingdom of God, it, it is unseen and spiritual. But since we learn from the Bible that God, as the creator of this world, also is its ruler, where then is the domain of the God of mammon? Well, God is the owner of creation. Psalm 24 says in its first verse, the whole of creation is the Lord's. So he is still the owner, even of the material world. He entrusted the world to mankind as representatives so they can rule it according to his will. He instates this right from the beginning with Adam and Eve. But they have different plans. We already talked about this. Because of their greed for godlike power, everything becomes chaotic and godly boundaries are broken. Since then mankind treats creation and including each other 
as, as if they would own it. What they hope to achieve is to fill the void that is in their heart with all kinds of material things. Naturally, they always want to have more than they had before, as the aforementioned gap in our heart and in our soul um, that came from leaving unity with and the presence of their Creator is still there, and it never seems to close. So in contrary, it seems to become bigger and bigger. So what they need even more, so they need even more than they had before. The consequence is they become even more aggressive and violent. James describes this in his letter in chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Again, I really like these drastic words as they illustrate that there is no fooling around. Greed brings forth violence. And this is the very character of the kingdom of Mammon. People who are under its dominion establish empires and kingdoms to gain power and influence at the cost of others. They establish systems like slavery to entertain these political uh, kingdoms and empires and to maximize profit. They forget that all the wealth and power they achieve does not belong to them, but to God. And this is demonstrated clearly through death, the end of all power and wealth. Nothing will be taken beyond life on earth. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, Do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroys, destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. So when God established that we do not own creation and its products, but only God does, what was God's intention when he handed dominion over creation to us, to mankind? Obviously he had in mind that we are responsible to him, the owner. We are responsible to our co-inhabitants who are also our representatives to the only owner, God. And he gave this responsibility to all people, to all of humankind, not just a few. Why do I want to mention this? Because the fact that we have kings and rulers in this world is also an outcome of our fallen nature, as this is not how the kingdom of God looks like. God himself answers to Samuel, who came to him to tell him about the desire of Israel to have its own king. Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from bringing king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And Samuel does so and then warns the people of Israel, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, 
and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flock and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. That's a very, very violent description. And still Israel wants his king. Though God clearly told them that in this that in his kingdom there is no king but only himself. You see the character of the kingdom of Mammon in which a violent ruler leads a violent nation. Jesus says in Matthew 20, you know about the rulers of the nations. They hold power over their people. They are high officials, order them around. Don't be like that. Now looking back at God's purposes for mankind, we so far have established that all creation is to serve all mankind. And all of mankind is to serve the Lord, who wants that all mankind participates equally in his creation. Therefore, he provides more than enough for his creation. And this is what we find in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. Now, humankind has lost this status. And in the hole that sin has teared in, in our hearts, the God of Mammon has entered in and established his own kingdom. And that is what we see reflected in our physical world. I want to focus even more on the character of this God of money. Where is his power from that he even corrupts a highly developed and wealthy system like ours? System that, as I mentioned before, raised the claim to be built on the foundation of Christian values. The word mammon originally translate, translates from the Aramaic although it has entered all kinds of different languages and in its origins it simply means money or property. As I already said, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount put the mammon in direct contrast to God and his kingdom. You can only serve one Lord, this either or. And to further describe the kingdom of mammon and to show why it is such a drastic contrast and there's no blurred lines between these two kingdoms, I want to quote some passages from the book Salt and Light of Eberhard Arnold. Now most of you probably know uh, him. He is the founder of the Bruderhof communities and many of uh, the communities are also part of this gathering, which is wonderful. It's a bit strange to tell you about <laughs> Eberhard Arnold, but anyways, um, Arnold's words sound really drastic at times, but so are Jesus' teachings and the messages of the prophets and it uh, helped me, as for me, I can say it helps me to understand what is on stake, at stake. Now I quote from page 80 to 81. In religion, as well as in atheism, there is an anti-god anti whom we can worship. The early Christians were convinced that there is a god in the world who is not the god of Jesus Christ. There is a god of godless, worldly religion, antagonistic to the life of Jesus. A God of the present era, hostile to God's future and his eternity. The nature of the anti-God is work without soul, business without love, machinery without spirit, and lust instead of joy. 
It craves for possessions without mutual help, destroys competitors and idolizes private property, obtained through fraud. This God is not the God of goodness. He is not the God of love. He is not the God of com community or of the future, not the Father of Jesus, nor the one who will bring the coming order of justice. No, he is a God of the present age, an interim God, a God of the abyss, a friend of darkness with a power to corrupt everything and bring death. This mighty demon of our age cannot simply be equated with superstition, yet superstition is part of it. Superstitious beliefs hold to the power of numbers and days and fear the demonic power of influential areas of life. This power extends beyond these spheres, compelling soldiers to wear an amulet around their necks so that while murdering, they will not be murdered themselves. People try to exorcise evil spirits by means of charms, not realizing that they themselves are possessed by these spirits. These demonic evil power operates even in the most religious players places where religion puts on its most pious mask. And he goes on, we would not be able to understand the words the God Mammon unless we knew the other th terms by which Jesus exposes this spirit. He calls it the murderer from the beginning, the father of lies, the unclean spirit. Its nature is materialism, its trade is murder, its character lying, its countenance impurity. To the moralist, these four traits are unrelated, but for those with more insight, there is no fundamental difference. Mammonism is the covetous will to seize, possess and enjoy. It, it destroys other lives for the sake of ownership and gratification by, such, by suggesting the, that another's life is obstructing one's own possession and pleasure, or by inducing the intoxication of lust. The hedonists enhance their own existence and increase their own power while corrupting the lives of others. The covetous will that governs mammon makes them twofold murderers. Lying, cowardice and immorality are the consequences of the same covetous will. Anyone possessed by the covetous, murderous spirit of mammon and unbridled sexual lust will have to tell lies. These words are taken from a speech that Arnold held before working-class people in 1924 in Eastern Germany. And these people were affected by the strife for an increase of profits. They were completely estranged from their own work. No components of love and grace were left in their work. Only the simple calculation of the value of their workforce. And that's the point. You can still find this today in our postmodern societies. Everything has a price, and love is not a factor in the equation. You are what you produce, so if your pro productivity rises, your value as a person does so too. This is the very kingdom of mammon. When love is taken out of this calculation, people get dehumanized, just as Abraham Arnold describes. People are getting in the way of the greedy. Therefore, the human life is deprived of its dignity, a clear form of violence both against the human being and the creator of it. You can see this in slavery, but it is not exclusive to that. You Still today you find in our society sex trafficking, trafficking, prostitution, fraud, corruption. All of these are forms and expressions of dehumanization that is part of the kingdom of mammon. The person becomes commodity, 
and commodities are to be consumed in whatever way the consumer wishes to do so. This clearly is an act of violence and it destroys both the soul of the victim and of the offender, the consumer. The greedy consumer is self-centered. He only sees himself in his personal gain, like the man and the mirror in the anecdote at the I mentioned at the beginning. It defies God's, God's ownership of creation. And the power of destruction, greed, the power of destruction greedy behavior has on us is the reason Jesus uses such strong words when addressing this issue. You cannot serve this world false God that dehumanizes the very people the true God has created with utmost dignity in his image. Ebert Arnold held this speech in Germany uh, in a time of heavy political upheaval and every day there were fights between conservative nationalistic forces on one side and, and socialist communist forces on the other side. Uh, to a moralist as he says, these struggles that still shape our political environment today and seem to shape, like we seem to return to the political environment we found in the um, first half of the last century. But like to, to a moralist, it must have looked like a fight between good and evil. Yeah, God against mammon. But that's not, that's just superficially the case. Arnold points this out very well in his book. I quote again. There are many who believe that religious people, the idealists, the devout, are on one side in the struggle, while materialists, those concerned with all outward things, are on the other side. Certainly, this classification has a certain justification, but it does not go to the bottom of the matter. Basically, it misses the point. The great struggle takes place in the heart of every person, in every materialist, just as much as in every idealist or religious person. We cannot say that the good are on one side and the bad on the other. It is not true that the religious life is good and the materialistic life is bad. The important thing is to discern where materialistic thinking puts its faith and where religious life finds its God where the spirit of each is found and what it values. So to summarize, it is in our hearts, in our inner life, where the battle takes place. Sin left a huge void in our hearts that we, that we can let either be filled with the Holy Spirit or the spirit of mammon, the love for mammon, for money. Only the Holy Spirit can transform my motives and align them to God's will. And that's what we want. We want our hearts to be freed from the influence of the God of Mammon. I want to give another example um, for the fact that this is not a, a, a fight between, a battle between different systems, but a battle that takes place in each and everyone's hearts. And I look again at the situation that Ibad Arnold was facing when he held his speech. Um, that's still somewhat actual to, uh, today. Worldly communism or socialism in its or origins actually has a noble cause in sharing the goods of God's creation equally between its inhabitants so that no one has to suffer from lacking the minimum subsistence base. 
I think we can agree on this, that this motivation seems to be good and in line with what Jesus is saying. And this theory, as I said, it is not an invention by Marx or the other um, communists. You can find this idea already in the laws of the Torah and in the words of Jesus and the apostles. They shared everything, it says. In the letter of James, chapter 5, it almost sounds as if it could be a part of a communist manifesto. I quote, You rich people, listen to me. Cry and sob, because you will soon be suffering. suffering. Your riches have rotted. Moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver have lost their brightness. Their dullness will give witness against you. Your wanting more and more will eat your body like fire. You have stored up riches in these last days. You have even failed to pay the workers who, move, who mowed your fields. Their pay is crying out against you. The cries of those who gathered the harvest have reached the ears of the Lord, who rules over all. <coughs> you have lived an easy life on earth. You have given yourselves everything you wanted. You have made yourselves fat like cattle that will soon be butchered. You have judged and murdered people who aren't guilty, and they weren't even opposing you. Again, very drastic words. So in theory, communism or socialism should be the more Christian system of government than capitalism. And idealistically, again, this is actually true. But why did the communist states that existed failed in implementing the noble ideas? Why were they seemingly even more flawed than capitalistic states nowadays? It is because in the minds and hearts of the people that developed these ideas or established these states, not the Holy Spirit, but the spirit of mammon was ruling. They also serve the materialistic spirit in the same way as those who support capitalistic views, in the same way as those they opposed. I recently read a very interesting article of the former mayor of Kiel. It's a city in northern Germany at the uh, at the sea. And yeah, she was part of the German Socialist Party for many years, but she now left the party. And in her article, she explains her decision to leave the party, though being a highly profi profiled politician for many years. She's, she's a well-known politician here in Germany. And her explanation is very revealing uh, about the fact that even those socialists uh, or people who, um, who support these socialist ideas often serve the same materialistic God as those who who are supporting capitalistic views. She said that one of the reasons of her leaving the party is that the only solution the Socialist Party offered to the working class or other deprived groups is to literally throw money at them. And this point was really revealing to me. You can have the most noble motives but still serve the God of Mammon. When you believe that money, property, or anything else materialistic can fill the void that sin and suffering have left in our hearts, you are following the same rules of the kingdom of mammon as those do who oppress people. It doesn't matter from which side you approach it. For modern day communists, the creation of material goods is also the solution to every problem. It's the same with capitalist, capitalists. It just there needs to be evenly distributed between everyone. But this is driven by the conviction that money, the mammon, will solve the problems of those dehumanized by money itself. And this cannot work. Actually, it 
dehumanizes people even more, since it is looking at the suffering of people and then just giving them money or other material goods, thinking that this will solve their problems, as if money could compensate for their suffering. And this dishonors their person. It also works with the assumption that all humans can be satisfied by a given standard of goods, which leaves out the creativity of our creator in making us all unique and different. Now, I don't want to become too political, but I wanted to give this example because it just helps to understand that the solution cannot be found in politics or a certain political system, nor in any materialistic approach. Only serving God, following him to meet our needs financially and especially spiritually, and living in the kingdom will free us both from greed and materialism and its consequences. It is our hearts that must be freed from money, not our political systems. In God's equation, it does not matter who, whether you are wealthy or poor with regards to material goods. The corona pandemic and its consequences pose to us the question, as a, uh, the question as a test. Are we willing to trust the Lord and share the goods he has entrusted to us, even if the value or quantity of our material, material goods may decrease? What is the value of living? And if we are posed with a threat of death through a pandemic, what does it tell us about the greed that has been riding our decisions in how to lead our life? The isolation calls us to seek Jesus in all our needs. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he wants to provide for our needs so that no, not only we will have all the material resources we need, but also that we can be free to share these gifts with others. This is nothing I can do because of my noble motives, but because of the Holy Spirit guiding me. And the noble motives can misguide me even to the point that I come to the conclusion I need violence to enforce them. To give this a good example on this, I again quote Ebert Arnold um, from another speech of his. What he's saying is, there are political organizations that stand, as we do, for international peace, the abolition, abolition of private property and full community of goods. Yet we cannot simply side with these organizations and fight their battles in their way. We do feel drawn with them to all people who suffer need and distress, to those who lack food and shelter and whose very mental development is stunted through exploitation. With them we stand side by side with the have-nots, with the underprivileged, and with the degraded and oppressed, and yet we avoid the kind of class struggle that employs violent means to avenge lives taken through exploitation. We must live in community because we take our stand in the spiritual battle on the side of all those who fight for freedom, unity, peace, and social justice. <coughs> so from my personal point of view, I must admit that these insights about materialism are fairly new to me. Of course, I knew that greed was bad and I knew these stories and passages from the Bible. But coming from a background that can be described both as Christian and as conservative, um, kind of capitalistic, I guess, I still always felt uncomfortable with Jesus' teaching about money and materialism. So, I see myself faced with the challenge of more clearly rejecting the kingdom of mammon, even in my own Christian background, and at the same time seeking the kingdom of God in everything. 
And yes, through the NGO network, I came in contact also with the Bruderhof communities. And then I, I come to believe that these communities, not only Bruderhof, but also other communities similar to them, that they offer a great example on how to live a wealthy life that is not dependent on any materialistic good or a strive for money, for more profit and wealth. It's the life of simplicity, basically. The Buddha of communities and others are driven by the conviction that God comes to us through Jesus to free us from the bondage of sin and the slavery of, to the God of Mammon. And so giving us new life that is not characterized by greed, violence or other damaging behaviors. And to achieve this, they are looking to get rid of any private property, not because private property in itself is evil, but the way humans violently deal with it and therefore get enslaved by the very thing they actually own and think to control. Anyways, private property has a huge potential to distract us from the kingdom of God, like the wealthy man who asked Jesus how to enter the kingdom was distracted and left him. Now, I'm not saying that this kind of life and community of shared goods is the only way to leave greed behind uh, or even flawless. Most definitely, you must be called to such a life. However, I think it contains a lot of wisdom and understanding about the benefit of living in material poverty. And it is a witness our Western churches, our Western societies, basically, desperately need to hear. To become healthy again. It puts God as only source for the restoration of the human being back in the focus. I can only look at my own German Lutheran church, that's my church background. This church is on the one hand compared to other churches in this world and communities is very very wealthy. They own so many properties and on the other hand they daily lose members. This church, in my opinion, among other things, needs to rediscover this life of simplicity as lived out in the Buddhahof and other communities. This life can be expressed in many ways. It, it usually starts with the inward conviction that is then expressed outwardly. Both these realities and the right balance reinforce each, each other and can lead us to a life and freedom from greed, lust and other violent behaviors. It will, go, it will go beyond the scope of this talk to describe the full meaning uh, of this discipline of simplicity, but I can really recommend uh, chapter 6, The Discipline of Simplicity of the book Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. He not only explains the basic concept of this discipline, but also offers recommendations on how to live out this life. And you don't necessarily need to become a member of any kind of community. Although I think he even recommends it in, at some point. Most importantly, he points, uh, Richard Foster points out what Jesus commands us to do. Uh, in Matthew 6, Richard Foster writes in his book, the central point of the discipline of simplicity is to seek the kingdom of God and the righteousness of his kingdom first, and then everything necessary, necessary, everything necessary will come in its proper order. It is impossible to overestimate the importance of Jesus' insight at this point. Everything hinges upon maintaining the first things as first. 
Nothing must come before the kingdom of God, including the desire for a simple lifestyle. It is the power and reality of the kingdom of God, opposed to the kingdom of mammon, that can transform our lives. And in this kingdom, we will find the treasure, treasures that are eternal. These can be found in our community, in the love we share with those who own more or maybe less than we do, with our co-workers, employers and employees. Most of all, it flows out of Jesus, who is compassionate and loving. In him there is the power to transform our old materialistic being into heavenly beings, which we were designed and created to be. Accessing the kingdom of God, an eternal life already here on earth, a life without greed, avarice and other worldly desires. So I want to finish and conclude with the words Paul wrote in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 1, verses 7 to 12. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the ministry of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. Yes, Lord Jesus, I thank you for this time. I thank you for you speaking to us through your spirit. Lord, I ask you that, that, that you may establish and manifest the kingdom of God in our hearts so that we may be true inhabitants of this kingdom and reject and leave all that is left of the kingdom of, kingdom of mammon inside of us. I thank you, I praise you, I honor you, and I love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, everyone. I hope you had, could draw some, take some things with you. And uh, I really hope to meet each and every one of you at some point in the future. Have a blessed day and yeah, hopefully see you soon. Bye.